Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 4.6 billion. The Earth Forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, where we feature stories and conversations about planetary change. I'm Leslie Chang, and I'm here in studio with Mike Osborne. Hello. Hi, Leslie. So a few weeks ago, you took a little road trip, drove up to Davis, California, to talk to science fiction author Kim Stanley Robinson. And you were really excited to go. I remember this. Um, and it's the second time, actually, that you've talked to Kim Stanley Robinson. And the first time um, we aired your conversation, like last year at some point. Can you just remind us what that first conversation was about? Yeah. Who? OK. It was a Big and broad-ranging conversation. I mean, we talked a lot about science fiction and what it does. We spent a lot of time talking about, you know, science. I mean, one thing about Kim Stanley Robinson is that he is incredibly well-read. Uh, and I don't, not just in terms of fiction, but in terms of science news. I mean, he is up on a lot of major topics. But we also ended up talking about kind of environmentalism as it stands today, um, you know, discomfort with technology, the role of the humanities, and really kind of what uh, what an optimistic future looks like. So science fiction as kind of a way of understanding global climate change and so many other problems with the Anthropocene. So one thing that he said that I have been thinking about a lot since then is this idea of the Anthropocene as kind of a science fiction concept, right? Yeah. It's like we're looking at the geologic record. We're in the future looking back on the rock record. We see the footprint of mankind. And I never really thought about it as a science fiction kind of thought experiment. No, it's interesting that you say that. And as soon as you do, I'm sort of reminded that that's now how I describe it. Pretend you could go a million years into the future, which by its construct is a science fiction thought experiment. And really, I didn't quite piece those two things together until the first time I talked to the KSR. Yeah. And so he has a new book called New York 2140, um, also science fiction, obviously. And uh, you guys spent 
some amount of time in the interview talking about it. Can you just describe actually what the premise of the book is? Sure. So it's set 120 years into the future. And the idea is that there has been a catastrophic global warming where there's been massive sea level rise on the order of 40 or 50 feet. I forget exactly. But uh, and New York City is largely submerged. Uh, he describes it as as a kind of Venice but it's still also New York as we sort of understand it today as a as a financial center and so there's a lot of kind of ecological change that's happened in the future but there's also it's sort of um, a late capitalism story and that term late capitalism is kind of batted around a lot these days and I don't totally get it other than to say capitalism as we understand it may not be sustainable uh so <laughs> It's a little bit about uh, rethinking our economic structure as well. Well, I haven't read the book yet, but I'm looking forward to it. And it's a really great conversation. So here is Mike with Kim Stanley Robinson. Do we need to say one more thing about it? Do you have one more thing to say about it? Yeah. Uh, once again, we did record the conversation in his courtyard outside. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, so there's some nature sounds. There's some nature sounds and some airplanes and cars flying by. It was not as serene as I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the Anthropocene. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The Anthropocene <laughs> is at Kim Stanley Robinson's house. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, here's the conversation. Once again, we're sitting in your courtyard, um, this sort of, you know, almost Sierra Meadow uh, outside of Davis, California. And um, and you mentioned that you do your writing here. Yeah. And I'm curious, like, did you feel like you had to travel to New York City to develop a relationship with the city? Or did you do that from here? And, and what was the more important uh, sort of way of of bringing to life this city of the future? Well, I wrote the book here. For sure. And that I've become very committed to that, this little courtyard out here. I mean, today it's going to be too hot. In about an hour, it will be too hot to think. And uh, I do have a mister that I string up around this uh, tarp of mine. And we're in a, it's springtime here in late May. And the star jasmine, the banksia roses, the pomegranates, it's very flowery and nicely scented. The birds are not as hungry as they are in the wintertime. So they kind of flash through and eat from my bird feeders and then uh, leave, but um, this is my space, and it's sort of like a meditation space. It's a little weird to spend ten years sitting in one chair in one courtyard, you know, for many many hours every day. Yeah. I don't know that. I mean, I've never done it before. I don't know anybody who does something that weird, but it allows me to just focus on the books, and the books have been various. So, New York, I had to imagine it and look at maps. But I did visit um, multiple times during the time, period of writing the book, which was a, about a year and a half of writing. I went uh, maybe three, four times in that period of time, and I, I went along with my maps, and I had marked on my maps the 50-foot sea level rise that I had called out for this book in order to get lower Manhattan underwater and make it look like a Venice. Right. Uh, when you're in from about, uh, well, roughly the Empire State Building south to Battery would all be underwater all the time. And then there'd be a tidal zone that I called the intertidal. And then there would the rest of Manhattan running up the a spine up the west side of the island would be above water. Big parts of the Bronx, uh, Queens, and Brooklyn would be underwater. Um, they're very low. And big parts of New Jersey behind Hoboken in the Meadowlands. Staten Island sticks up pretty high. So anyway, I had that map marked. And I started visiting places 
that would be in the intertidal, places that would be underwater like Coney Island, places that would be always above water, especially the north end of the island, the cloisters. Um, I, I had a friend, and she drove me around to the places that you can't get on the subways and showed me things she thought I ought to see, and other friends from New York showed me things they thought I ought to see to get a proper impression of New York that wasn't just the usual tourist sites. Yeah. One of, I mean, it's... I always want to be careful uh, when I'm interviewing somebody about a book they wrote not to spoil anything. Um, oh, yeah. Well, we can do that. I myself don't worry about spoilers at this point. Okay, great. Uh, well, one of the things um, about the structure of it, I mean, it's organized in terms of uh, each chapter is a character, essentially. Um, and and I, I, I love this sort of construct of the uh, apartment or the subway where it's, you know, people who would not otherwise meet or yeah. not otherwise, you know, sort of be in the same room yeah. uh, and how their lives intersect. Because it does uh, offer a cross-section uh, of experience and, and, and so forth. Um, the, the one character that's sort of an exception is the citizen. Uh, right. And so maybe you can tell me a little bit about sort of what what the citizen was as a character and, and, and what the kind of device was for helping you know, round out the, the, the world that we're imagining in this. Sure. There are the eight points of view, and they're all characters followed in third person except for one, Franklin Gar, the financier, young uh, trader and a derivatives trader who is in first person. He tells us his story directly. But then their eighth character is indeed the citizen, a citizen, that city smartass, it's a very typical New Yorker voice, and you can imagine it in a New Yorker accent. And so I've become notorious, I guess is the best way to put it, for using lots of exposition in my novels. I don't worry about that very much, but it has made me edgy and um, um, not defensive, but more aggressive in my defense of um, exposition as a mode. Yeah. And so the citizen is a hard-bitten, aggressive, sarcastic, a sarcastic son of a bitch from New York who is not going to be patient with that kind of stupidity. So he's always on his readers to snap up, get a grip, pay attention, and also realize that the historical story, the geographical story, um, the story of the Anthropocene, the story of the big floods, these are as important or maybe more important than the dramatic dramatized scenes that are my characters lives right. it felt like an emotional vent somehow <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, there there was there and which it, now that you describe it as a sort of um you know kind of uh you know almost you know new york caricature or, or something and read it in a new york accent with yep. a kind of you know of a place attitude uh, that makes so much sense because there is um there, there is exposition there, but there's also a kind of like, all the shields are off, just sort of go right at it. Yeah. Um, emotional yeah. energy to those passages that yeah. that is separate from the kind of character experience of the book. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I, I I went back and sort of thumbed through after I read it and and reread some of those and uh, and especially especially the sort of how you use that figure to. Um, to, to answer the grand question of how did it go down yes. that we had 50 feet of sea level rise. and these Maybe you can say a bit more about that. Well, yeah, I will. And I, I just want to agree with you that um, the, the, the citizen is, is hot. He's, he's angry. He's disgusted. He's obnoxious and uh, unafraid of calling out stuff that he considers to be bullshit. 
And so his language, although he's technical and, and well-informed, his language is also uh, profane and sarcastic. So yeah, these were uh, fun passages to write. They seemed like it. <laughs> yeah, it was almost like ranting. And they needed revision, of course, but it was really fun. Now, what he's describing, I know first he describes the, the weird geography of New York Estuary and Bay, because that's unusual and people don't quite get it unless it's explained. Mm -hmm. Then the history of the building that they're in, which is peculiar, the old MetLife Tower on Madison Square and Madison Square itself. These are one of those interesting touristic spots in New York that there's so many of them that it kind of gets lost in the shuffle. But for this novel, the point is that that tower was built as an imitation of the Campanile in San Marcos Plaza in Venice. So it's already a Venetian building. It's about 10 times bigger than the Campanile in Venice, which, by the way, fell down. It was a brick building. It fell down in 1904. The citizen, then, is the voice of the city, but he also gives the story of the sea level rise. He's an expert on that, too, like he's an expert on everything New York, but also expert everything Anthropocene. Yeah. And so there's a lot of ice stacked up on Antarctica and on Greenland. If all of that ice were to melt and go into the oceans, you get a sea level rise of 210 feet. Massive and uh, bizarre, but very unlikely to happen because the ice, especially on Antarctica, there's so much of it and it's cold there six months of every year, even when climate change, because right. there's no sunlight. So uh, how much sea level rise there's going to be is actually highly contested. Yeah. Um, James Hansen wrote a paper in 2016 with uh, 18 co-authors suggesting that the IPCC estimates of sea level rise have been extremely conservative on purpose in order to be defensible. And what you can say for sure is that we're going to get a little sea level rise, maybe a meter in the next century. This is what the IPCC said. But what Hansen pointed out was 128,000 years ago in the Eemian period, um, there was a temperature rise similar to our temperature rise, and there was a sea level rise in a century of about 15 meters. Well, this was mind-boggling, and it couldn't be easily explained, and so Hansen's paper sets out to try to explain it, and it has to do with the Antarctic ice being perched and being held in place simply by ice itself weighing down on the seafloor just in the shallows of the Antarctic shallows, which are weirdly bowl-like. Yeah, there's there's like a substantial amount of it that's actually below sea level, yep. but, um, and, and it's sort of like buttressed, yeah. Yes, and there is even this great phrase, the buttress of the buttress, right. which is only ice itself resting on a lip of rock. When that goes, the this is the Hansen hypothesis, there's a whole lot of ice that will very quickly slip into the ocean, and the moment it's in the ocean, it displaces that much water. Right. Now, it's a controversial paper. It's a strange paper, because he's trying to wave a red flag and give people a warning sign, and so he goes out onto, in another analogy, you'd call it, he steps out onto thin ice. Uh, his argument is cobbled together from some pretty rickety... Um, precedents or, or things that everybody would agree on are a little bit in short supply in that paper. So to a certain extent, it's a demonstrative paper where he's trying to uh, wave a red flag and say, look, it could be way worse than we think. Our, our supposed uh, 2 degree or 1.5 degree Celsius maximum that we'll be safe in might not be safe if you include sea level rise. Yeah. So I decided to illustrate that point by uh, showing what could happen if the Hansen hypothesis turns out to be correct. That within 100 years, 120 years in my novel, you could get quite massive sea level rise from the ice in Greenland and Antarctica slipping into the sea. 
So it's a little bit solider than I thought it was going to be when I started writing the book. When I started writing the book, I thought, well, this is going too far, but I need it in order to get the lower Manhattan that I want. I'll just assert it because the ice exists. Yeah. Um, and then while I was writing the book, I was see reading these papers that were actually quite uh, supportive of my thesis or my or my it's not even a thesis for a science fiction writer. It's a it's a this could happen. Let's pursue it as a kind of scenario. A scenario. Yeah. 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 Um, and then and then, you know, I, I sort of there was something nice about it being divided into pulses, uh, that there's a first pulse and, and a second pulse. Um, so maybe you could talk a bit about that. I don't know why, but I sort of liked it in, in two sort of staged events. Well, uh, this is a little bit speculative on my part. It wasn't necessary to my book as long as I get to the end result. It could have been an even flow the whole time. But the suggestion that when these buttresses came off was when there would be a more rapid flow of glaciers. Um, there have been individual glaciers, especially in Alaska and in the Canadian Rockies that will suddenly slide way faster than usual. So I was working by analogy to those. Mm -hmm. And I thought, if you do get, say, what I had my first pulse be like a 10-foot sea level rise over 10 years, well, that would be disaster. But what it does also is injects a whole lot of uh, warmer-than-normal water underneath all the buttresses down there in Antarctica where a huge amount in eastern Antarctica that had never been mapped before, by the way, a huge amount of ice ready to slide, and so the second pulse was even bigger, like 40 feet. So that's my little contribution to the what-if uh, genre, where a science fiction writer is actually supposed to think rather than just reflect. And truthfully, I'm a science fiction writer that is more of a reflecting what I'm told by this culture and by the scientists of this culture. I'm not um, an original or creative scientific thinker myself. I'm an English major. But just following the logic of what I've been told here it seemed as likely as any other scenario. One of the things that strikes me about your decision to have these two pulse events um, is that, you know, the entire novel takes place after this, right? That there's, that there's yeah. something, it's not about those events. It's about, um, you know, they've happened and now they're just part of accepted reality. Yeah. Um, and the other sort of like truth about the present that's extrapolated is that New York is still a financial power. It's still, in so many ways, the, the center of, uh, of the financial industry. Um, so, so maybe you can talk about, you know, that, because it sort of was sort of interesting to me to read about New York in 2140 and imagine it and still see it as a submerged yet very powerful place. Right. Well, let's see. There's different parts to this. First comes the idea that 40 or 50 years after sea level rise, especially if it stabilizes and all of the really loose ice is out there and it seems like things have stabilized, people will still live their lives. They will go on. So what I wanted to do was, it's a really fine balance to keep. Sea level rise of that magnitude is a uh, historic disaster of just unprecedented magnitude. There's going to be a lot of suffering, a lot of death, a lot of um, dis uh, refugee crisis, hunger, displacement. Nothing like it in world history except for the really big uh, wars and diasporas. On the other hand, it's not going to be the end of the world. It's not going to be zombies in the streets and the whole apocalyptic imagination of dystopian fiction of like, oh, my God, this will be the end of everything. No, it won't be the end of everything. And 40 years later, people are going to be thinking of it as normal and they're going to be coping. So I wanted to write a novel about coping yeah. and about 
uh, successful coping as well as difficult coping. In my book, with sea level rise, you've got something in between, and we are not good at thinking in between. We're good at thinking either uh, great or terrible. But there's that in-between zone where you're going to have to try to make the best of a bad situation. And the situation, although bad, is not um, an extinction event for humans. Now, it will be the beginning of a mass extinction event, which we've already begun anyway, for the rest of the big mammals. I mean, 97% of the biomass on this planet right now is, is I guess, with vertebrate. Uh, biomass is humans and our domestic beasts. Well, this is a terrible situation and a dangerous situation. Even so, people try to go on. Now, to New York, there's a lot of infrastructure there already that will still work if you want it to work, if you want to stay. So the tyranny of sunk costs is what they call this in economics, but also a spiritual thing or a, what can you call it, a kind of patriotism. People love New York. New York has a charisma and a mystique to it. That will continue. And I wanted to show that in some senses, Venice is a greater city than New York in terms of beauty, in terms of dealing with being an ocean city. Uh, Venice is very suggestive to anybody who's been there and has looked at the rest of the cities of the world. And so this is the parts of the thing that I was thinking about when I wrote it. Um, what about New York as a center of finance? I mean, a minute ago you mentioned um, sort of uh, late capitalism, post-capitalism. Right, These right. terms are batted around. And frankly, uh, I'm still... I'm now just encountering them, to be honest. I mean, I sort of uh, intuitively have a sense that uh, capitalism as it's currently constructed is uh, fundamentally unsustainable. I mean, the the, uh, phrase, uh, you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet, still sort of rings true to me, although I think people debate that. Um, You know, how introduce me to the concept and and sort of where you wanted to go with it and how you want to explore that thread in uh, in New York and in uh, your other work. Sure. Um, well, they call it neoliberalism. This is sort of what capitalism has morphed into. You have a world in which the nation states have lost power relative to capital itself, which is free-floating and goes to the highest rate of return, whatever that may be. And there's a lot of money out there that is both um, real money and fictional money. And I'm using uh, quote marks around these words because it's very hard to tell the difference when push comes to shove. When there's a crisis, like in 2008, a lot of what people thought of as being money just disappeared and, and, um, and, and turned into uh, worthless uh, paper, paper to vapor. So um, I, it's hard to uh, be coherent when talking about something this big, but I'm trying to give you the big picture here as I see it and as a lot of people see it. The, the nation states have also signed treaties with each other that um, reduce their uh, abilities to regulate and to set uh, labor laws and environmental laws and give that over to capital itself, which doesn't care because all capital cares about is the highest rate of return uh, for its investors. So it's the market rules. Yeah. But the market persistently undervalues and underprices, let's put it that way, uh, labor. So they, you want the cheapest labor possible that can actually do the job. So that floats around the world at different times. Because one or two generations of the cheapest labor, that working population gets middle class and then they demand higher wages and better lives for their children so that capital shifts to the next place that's ready to be developed in that same way with the cheapest labor. China, of course, has been a gigantic um, new source of free of cheap labor power and has become say the working class of the world and the manufacturing center of the world and now is one of the second the second biggest economy in the world but a lot of the capital 
is still owned by Americans. They're estimated maybe 70% of the capital in the world still under U.S. control, more or less. And if it's a company like Exxon, is that really an American company or not? This is worth debating because these free-floating big, big corporations are bigger than most nations, and they can move their capital without much restraint. So this is what uh, this is a very quick and, and uh, blunt description of the situation. What it means, though, is that there's a crisis of representation. Do your politicians really represent you if you are an American citizen, if you are a Chinese citizen uh, with the one party, if you're a European citizen with your nation, nation state, and then the European Union, and then also global capital on top of that, telling the European Union technocrats what to do, etc. If the market rules, is there democracy? Yeah. So this is the crisis of our time, and one of the things I wanted to talk about in New York 2140. How does that system work? How can people take it back? Well, and what surprised me, I guess, New York 2140, this, the setting, still had um, an economic structure and a global economic structure that I more or less recognized. Yes. And that we weren't actually past that and imagining on to the next thing. And I think that that is kind of the question of the time, is, you know, this, this looks like it's breaking. How does it break? Um, well, now, that's an interesting thing that needs to be talked about. How does science fiction work? My novel, New York 2140, has two lenses to it, like the lenses you look through at the 3D movies. One lens is really an attempt to envision what it would look like if there was massive sea level rise in the year 2140. The other lens is a metaphorical depiction of what now is. We're in climate change. We have finance the way it is now. And so my novel is not an attempt to show history 120 years further on. It's a metaphorical portrait of the way things are right now. Right. So what they're doing in that novel in 2140, we could do now in the next five to ten years if we had the story told to us, if we had the political vision and the political plan in hand. So you've been studying the Anthropocene, but the Anthropocene is an economic emergency causing the physical emergency. Because here's what we've got. We've got eight billion people. The planet could support those people in adequacy and all the big mammals and all the ecological zones. That could work. The, we've got clean tech. It isn't yet instituted across the world, but we've got the technologies. We don't have to invent that part of it. What we have messing things up is the third term, which is the economic systems by which we uh, pay ourselves to value work. What work is valuable, what work is not valuable. That, when you leave it to the free market, it always gets it wrong. And so this is what I'm talking about, is a basically government intrusion back into the market in order to direct it towards survival, uh, towards a dodging of the mass extinction event. To put together a novel like this, and then to, you know, flush out characters, uh, there's there's a tremendous amount of uh, sort of learning that, that has to take place. Um, I mean, you really, to speak about this, you do need to understand something about macroeconomics and financial structure, as well as geology and climate and ecology and so forth. So I think I want to pull back from that and try to talk a little bit about the role that science and academics and knowledge creation, a lot of it that happens at universities and big national labs, plays in our society today because I think that there's a tremendous amount of fear out there right now that we have hit uh, a kind of, uh, I, I don't know what to call it other than a post-truth society. I don't necessarily love that term, but as a science fiction author, I'm kind of curious to understand how you 
how you see that, how you see, uh, you know, people's willingness to not have faith in that, in that process of knowledge creation. Does that question make sense? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I, I want to speak to that. Um, but I also want to make one more economic point. When I say that the market misprices things, this is what I mean by that. It's well known that it's a question of supply and demand. That's really what makes it free. There's a lot of people out there with stuff to sell. There's a lot of buyers out there, and, and they are free to come to a price between them and aggregates on both sides. What happens is that sellers will sell things that they've made for less than it costs them to make it. Now, this is a recipe for bankruptcy, you would think, and a lot of companies do go bankrupt, but what happens is, in order to still stay in business and make that profit, is a lot of the costs of making the thing are shoved under the rug and not paid. It's future generations that pay them, it's the environment that pays them. The environment takes the hit for one's pollution, you don't pay for getting rid of the crap of making your thing. Uh, the future generations pay these extra costs. So and it's discounting the future. It's discounting the future. So that's why I say the free market is basically a kind of a Ponzi scheme where both buyers and sellers, everybody alive today, is in collusion. None of us really admits that we're underpaying for the, for the lives that we lead and that the future generations are going to have to take the hit of paying the full cost. Mm. And now, no matter how much future generations pay, they can't pay their way out of climate change, the Anthropocene, the mass extinction event. Because once species are extinct, once the ocean is acidified, once the planet is cooked, it doesn't matter if you're 10 times richer in the few, 100 years from now than we are right now in money terms. Because what does riches mean? What does money mean? You can't do it. So this is where economics is a kind of a lie that we use to fool ourselves. Propped up on the kind of premise that uh, nature and society are separate things. It seems to me, right? Yeah, like yeah. That's where it becomes yeah. most complicated because yeah. if you account for the value of nature, then uh, then you're no longer doing that discounting. That's right. And, and that's why they call them externalities when they're not externalities. Economics will label these as externalities when it turns out that it's actually part of our body. So if you were to think, okay, well, I'll just cut off my left arm and then later on I'll pay to have a cyborg arm put on there that like does even more and that makes it worth it. This is more or less what we're doing to ourselves. And you never can get a cyborg arm that's as good as your natural arm in terms of how it feels and how organically connected you are to yourself. So the world, especially now that we know about the microbiome, now that we know that 50% of the DNA inside our bodies is not even human DNA, we know that we're embroiled in the world. We are webbed in or nested. We're part of the world like jellyfish are part of the ocean. It the world flows through us, and we are just an organizational point in the world's flow. Once you know that, which is really what science has taught us, and that can get us to the other part of the question that you asked, I think of science in very uh, idealistic and positive terms. It's a kind of utopian force. It's a study of the world as it really exists, an attempt to understand it so well that you can predict its actions in certain ways, mathematicized, quantified, and uh, categorized in ways that mean that we understand it as a system of flows, as energy flows, as physics, as biology as chemistry and then it gets sketchier and sketchier the more you include human social action. Um, the social sciences are sketchier and more uh, speculative than the hard sciences but they still use the same rules of uh, quantification and statistics to try to say these are things that uh, and, and 
Post-truth is just a political phrase from the current moment. Bruno Latour and all of the uh, social scientists following Bruno Latour's insights would say a fact is something that we have all agreed upon to be the case and we don't need to argue it anymore. So say the solar system, you know, that the sun's there and it's a star like the other stars we see, a particular kind of star, in fact, and then the planets rotate around it. We don't have to argue that anymore the way Galileo and Kepler and Copernicus had to argue that. That's a fact. Now, what's I think happened now is there are people who are alarmed and upset by the idea that they might not be as powerful as they thought they were in the world population. They're thinking 8 billion people, and really there's only about 500 million that are doing really well and are, are climate change actors who are burning more carbon than the average by a marked degree. And those people are worried that if everybody has equal rights, then they're going to be living miserable lives. So there's a power play going on, and certain bodies of facts like uh, are being uh, contested. Well, that's not really a fact. So climate change exists as a kind of a hyper-object, a collection of facts with new findings and a, and a theory as to binds them all together in a very satisfying way that any scientist studying it has agreed is the situation. People outside the sciences are saying, well, I don't believe that. But those people, when they get sick, they will run right to science because medicine is science. And this is what everybody needs to understand. So they cherry pick. And humans are good at holding contradictions in their head. We all do that. But in this case, the contradiction is this. The science that you run to when you're scared for your life is being contested in another area when it might be a risk to your pocketbook. Well, and I think that there's a, a strong case to be made that environmental health is its own kind of medicine as well. Um, and... Uh, and so that, you know, we have this tendency to divorce subfields of science yes. um, in a way that maybe makes good politics. Well, E.O. Wilson's very good on this with his word consilience. The, the whole book, his whole book, that's an important book as many of his are. Um, consilience means that all the sciences are consilient with each other and support each other, and you cannot cherry pick them and still be a coherent person. It, uh, physics uh, supports our understanding of chemistry. Chemistry supports our understanding of biology. Biology is crazy complex. But it, uh, it is at the basis of our understanding of ecology, and then you get further on up into the social sciences. Right, right. I mean, it, exactly. And I think that that's important because, let's not forget, humans are part of the animal kingdom and a descendant of the evolutionary tree. Um, it's interesting to me how much of this conversation uh, we've spent talking about sort of economic forces, um, because they are in so many ways the forces that rule our lives, or at least feel like it. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, environmental forces play a role here as well, and we can't ignore that. And I guess all of this has me wanting to ask a question about um, kind of reclaiming the role that science plays in flushing out those utopian and dystopian futures. Because I think one thing that I've really globbed onto lately is the notion that a lot of science learning is informal, that it doesn't actually happen in the classroom, doesn't happen when you're in fourth grade and playing mm. with the Petri dish. A lot of it happens by watching the Discovery Channel mm. or visiting a museum or perhaps reading a science fiction novel. So, uh, so I don't know, to kind of bring this back to, you know, your territory. Yeah. Um, you know, what do you see as the sort of importance in science fiction literature or, or in pop culture more broadly, uh, regardless of the medium, 
uh, in doing that, in that service of, of science, you know, as part of our lives? Well, um, the more we are all citizen scientists, where we study something we find of interest in our world and maybe uh, keep records, take photos, uh, watch, try to understand it as a, a bit part of a bigger system, the more we try to think ecologically, the more interesting life becomes and the more you understand what's going on in terms of the broader forces. So you don't feel so overwhelmed or confused by the gigantic influx of data that's coming in mostly through the Internet, and which is a very unreliable un, uh, source of information. But nevertheless, it is information, and you need mental instruments to sort through it to see what's useful and right um, and helpful and what's just not useful. You need a, an organizing story that puts it all together, and then when you study the world, when the world comes in at you, um, you're better able to cope with it and figure out what to do next with your own life. That, I think, is science fiction's part of that larger project of explaining things, uh, the larger picture in which you fit the facts or factoids that come in at you. And what's weird about our time is that the dystopian future is quite plausible. We're kind of um, marching in that direction. We have some momentum going towards a dystopian future where we create the mass extinction event and we ourselves are in terrible trouble and the Earth as a biosphere Life will go on, but humanity could get hammered and the big mammals could go extinct. This is the bad scenario. That could happen, but on the other hand, if we were to do all the things that, w that we could do in terms of our technology, which includes our software, our, the stories we tell each other, the, the laws that we pass, the economic systems that we have, these are all um, parts of the world that are uh, technologies also. The potential is there for... Um, Prosperous lives for all humans, prosperous lives for all the mammals that exist at this moment, a uh, little bit of de-extinction if you want to get um, uh, frivolous about it, but in any case, keep the mammals alive that are alive now, and don't drive them into extinction, and uh, adequacy for all, and, and then um, that leads to the suggestion that things could get markedly better because then the story doesn't end in a, a disaster and recovery and coping. The, the story kind of morphs into a, 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 I won't say a golden age, but a, an age of huge excitement where the potentiality of the human race, if everybody, if there were, if there were 8 billion people that were all prosperous. Mm -hmm. So um, in other words, there is what you could call the utopian future that is still possible from right now, from the conditions we're in right now. Momentum seems to be towards the dystopian because capitalism rules and capitalism doesn't take account of this. We're paying ourselves for the wrong things. We're not paying ourselves to do the right things. So it's really the economic system that is the crux and it's why I'm focusing on that. That is the science fiction story or the utopian story. Is some kind of post-capitalism where we pay ourselves to do the right thing. And then if we do that, We've got a, a almost unlimited potential. Yeah, and the stories underneath that and feeling that possibility. Well, yes, uh, but that's okay. I mean, hope is very natural, very biological. Uh, um, hope is what gets you up in the morning, and hope is what is a you could call hunger a kind of hope for more energy. Yeah. Um, so I think that um, it, it may be fashionable to be pessimistic or cynical, uh, in this culture, because uh, you don't want to look like you're naive or, or innocent in this culture of hyper-information or whatever you want to call modern American culture. But I w the people around the world that are struggling in much worse uh, physical and social conditions than us are often quite hopeful. 
uh, if when they're polled about this. So yeah. it, it's our responsibility to be hopeful because we are the prosperous West and we are burning more carbon than anyone else. So if we're th at the same time uh, uh, pessimistic and cynical, then we become like the villains of history. And uh, that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. So I, uh, it's getting warm. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. Before, uh, before we uh, sort of sign off, I did want to ask, what are you working on now? Uh, I am working on a science fiction novel, and it's, um, uh, it's really kind of the last place in the solar system left that I've never investigated closely. So I'm writing a novel set on the moon, mostly, and also on Earth. Wow. And uh, I think that what's going to happen, and so this is why I'm writing it, is I think that the Chinese are the nation that has the um, accumulated capital surplus and the national desire. So I have the Chinese sort of taking over the South Pole of the moon, and uh, going on from there. And, you know, ultimately the moon is uh, almost useless for humans, <laughs> right. uh, except as a transfer station to the rest of the solar system. So once you throw your capital, uh, uh, accumulated capital into a lunar base, you are almost uh, necessarily, you have to follow that up with a spread through out into the asteroids to Mars to Venus. So I'm doing China moon. Huh, awesome. Um, yeah. Kim Stanley Robinson, always a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, thank you again for making the time. Oh, thank you, Mike, and I hope we can get into air conditioning here for the rest of the day. <laughs> That was Mike Osborne in conversation with Kim Stanley Robinson. Once again, KSR's latest book is called New York 2140. And if you enjoyed that conversation, check out Mike's first interview with Kim Stanley Robinson, which was from last year. We'll link to it in the show notes. Our show is produced by Jackson Roach, Mike Osborne, Miles Traer, and me, Leslie Chang. Isha Salian also contributed production help this week. Additional thanks, as always, to Sir Thomas Hayden. Our project is supported by Worldview Stanford and Stanford Earth. You can learn more about the podcast online at www.genanthro.com. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter at Gen Anthropocene. Thank you so much for listening.